Well, thank you, Rory. Good to be with you guys today. Um, I would love to say, um, good to see you family. Um, years ago, Michelle and I were, had the opportunity to go to Hawaii, and I was really moved by every time we went down to get food, they would always say, hello, family. That's how they would greet you. I thought, that's a wonderful way. So, hello, family. It's good to see you guys this morning. Great to worship the Lord together. Um, Rory asked me before we even begin today, before we get in our sermon, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. But before we even get into that, um, he asked me to share a little bit about my testimony, um, which I think is really fitting for what we're looking at this morning. Um, That's another wonderful thing that pastors love to hear besides people talking and sharing and visiting is the pages of Scripture turning. We love to hear that as well. So just a a little bit about about, um, my journey with Jesus. I grew up uh, in a military home, so you can imagine the structure that I grew up um, in. My wife, or my wife, my mom was a nurse. My dad was uh, in the Army for 31 years. Um, we grew up in a CEO home. CEO meaning, you know, we were Catholic, you know, Christmas and Easter only Catholics, right? And so, and then that's even generous to say because I can honestly say the first time I ever remember stepping foot in a church with my dad was on my wedding day twenty-one when I was 21 years old. The only time I went to church was with my grandma, really. Um, that was Christmas and Easter and when I spent the weekends with her. Um, but I always had, you know, a heart for the Lord. I always believed that God existed. I um, always went to him when I was in trouble. But other than that, he was kind of outside of my thoughts. Um, coupled with that, the fact that I grew up in a military home and God was really not um, available or even present in our home as my dad struggled with alcoholism. Um, and so that created a really interesting environment to grow up in. Um, brokenness probably would be a great way to describe it. Uh, how we handle that, my sister, she's 13 months older than myself. She rebelled against my parents and got into drugs and alcohol, dropped out of high school, got pregnant when she was a, a senior in high school, caused a lot of heartache and pain for my family. I purposed to just keep my head down, keep my nose clean, and do, be a good student and be a really good kid. Um, And all the frustration and anxiety of growing up in that household, I focused on athletics, um, I excelled in sports, and then got a scholarship to play football at Oregon State. And Beaver fans? Duck fans? Get out. (laughs) Ushers, can you remove these gentlemen right here? Um, (laughs) um, So I played football in college. Uh, When I got from underneath that covering of being at home, um, all of that pressure that had been bent up for 18 years, kind of the lid came off. And I got involved, um, started drinking a lot, got in fights almost every single weekend. I almost got expelled from college because I was fighting so much. I was an angry young man and didn't really know what to do. I wanted to quit school. My mom really encouraged me to stay in school and finish the year out. And I'm so glad that she did because the following year, in my sophomore year, God brought two men into my life. One guy, his name was Ryan Sugai. He was a wrestler from Hawaii. And then another man, an old country preacher named Earl Hinkle. And Earl, when I say old, he was old, all right? But he loved the Lord. And he was like, he was like a messenger of the Holy Spirit. Whenever I was doing something I shouldn't do, I'd turn around and Earl was there. And, uh, and I, I, you know, they would talk to me, they would share, they'd pray, they'd share about Jesus. And I really didn't want anything to do with Jesus. I just, I was angry. I wanted to just live my life. I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do. I didn't want any constraints. I'd lived under constraints for 18 years of my life. And I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. Um, and it was destructive. But these guys were relentless. And um, I would hide from them. I'd see them on campus and literally I'd hide from them. I would hide behind trees, behind garbage cans, um, park benches, whatever I could do to get it. But every time I tried to hide from them, they'd always show up. And over time, the Lord started working on my heart. Um, and now I'm going to fast forward a little bit just for the sake of time. Um, we're talking about November of 1992. Um, I met my wife, Michelle. And how we met and how we're actually married is a miracle in and of itself and really a testimony of God 
Um, but we met, I invited her to my parents' house. We lived in the foothills of the Cascades. We had 13 acres and we had horses, and so I brought her up to ride horses um, over Thanksgiving break. And, and she reciprocated and invited me to her parents' house um, over December Christmas break. And specifically to go to a concert that one of her friends, or a real close friend of hers named Aaron, was singing at. And so I agreed and I went. And it was um, a wonderful time, a huge church. They had probably at least a 1,000 people there, if not more. And uh, we were sitting at, in the kind of the nosebleed section up in the balcony. And I was very comfortable sitting up there. Uh, but God was doing something, and all of a sudden, he opened my heart as we were singing these Christmas carols. For the first time in my life, I began to understand that they weren't just songs that we sang at a holiday but they were telling a story about a God who loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to be born in a manger to save mankind. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is incredible. And I've sung these songs my entire life. I was in choir in junior high. We sang these for Christmas you know, concerts when I was in junior high school. And I thought, how did I not know this? At the end of the concert, uh, the pastor comes out, and he offers to lead those who want to receive Jesus in a prayer. And again, I, I didn't know anything about Christianity. I didn't know anything about Christian churches. I thought this was just wonderful. It was a massive stage. It had you know, five giant Christmas trees and a 30-person choir and a 30-person orchestra. I thought, this is beautiful. This is wonderful. And he said, so I, he invited us to, to talk louder. I don't know if I can talk louder. I'll try. Um, so he invited us to pray. Doc's going, talk louder. So um, he invited us to pray and he invited us to close our eyes and bow our heads. And, and if you wanted to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior to raise your hand. And I literally said to myself, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and all of a sudden my hand went up. And I had my eyes open, and I looked down, and he looks at me, and goes, I see you up there. I'm like, dang it. <laughs> and we began to pray. And I know many people, when they pray to receive the Lord, they don't really experience anything. Um, but where I was with, in my life, I had a physical manifestation of the work of God in my life when I sat in that chair on that day, kind of a road to Damascus type experience. Uh, many people don't have these, but I had something. Where I walked away from that moment, I knew something happened. It wasn't just a prayer, and I walked away going, okay, now what? It was like something happened. And as he led me in that prayer, I remember opening my eyes and looking at that sanctuary, a thousand plus people, and it was completely empty. And all that was left is he was on the stage, he was looking right at me, and I'm sitting in the same spot I'm sitting in. Michelle is no longer sitting next to me. And we began to pray. And as we prayed, my heart began to beat so profoundly, so powerfully, that my body began to shake. With each beat, my body would shake. And it was almost as if my heart was growing. Remember, remember the Grinch story as his heart begins to grow? Literally, that's what it felt like. And, and it began to fill my entire chest cavity. And with every prayer, every word spoken, my body would shake. And by the time it was over, we said amen. I was exhausted. Almost as if like, you've ever been experienced where you, you have a, you know, something you have to get done, whether it be a, a final exam or whether it be some kind of a deadline you have to meet. And it's so stressful. And then finally, when you, you get to that point, you just feel like you just want to take a nap. That's what I felt like. I just wanted to go to bed. I was so tired. We get done. The concert's over. We talk to Aaron a little bit. We get in the car. The car's warming up. And Michelle goes, so what do you think? And I said, it was good. <laughs> and she goes, really? That's all you have? And I said, oh, something just happened to me. And she goes, what do you mean? I go, I don't know. Because no one ever explained any of this before. I said, I don't know, but it was weird. <laughs> and from that moment on, my life radically changed. When I went back to college after Christmas break, I was a different person. Fast forward two years later, my wife and I, we, we get married. A year after that, I get involved that God calls me to ministry. And so I've been following the Lord 30 years, been in ministry for 26 years, been married almost 27 years. 
coming up here this December. And I'm so thankful that God has saved me. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, when Rory asked me to, to give my testimony to share it, again, this is just a brief picture of kind of, you know, what we're talking about um, as far as my life and what God has done in the journey that uh, God has had me on. But when he asked me to give my testimony, I thought it was very fitting for the, for the message we're going to be looking at, the passage we're going to be looking at here this morning. Because this morning's message is all about our salvation and specifically how the three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, work together to secure our salvation. It's one of my favorite sections in all of Scripture. And even this morning, I was going through it, and I read through it one more time. I just found myself going, God, thank you. Thank you for what you have done in all of our lives. Because in this passage, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we see not only that we are saved, but that we are completely saved. Amen? Amen. Well, Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians by affirming in no uncertain terms the height and depth, the width and the breadth of our spiritual riches in Christ. In verse 3, we'll pull that up here real quick, he declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here's the key. You see, some of us understand, and we are experiencing, we're drawing from the wealth of our spiritual riches that have been given to us in Christ. And many of us are making daily withdrawals from our spiritual bank accounts. And because of that, we're thriving in our ongoing relationship with Jesus. We're experiencing peace and rest and power and contentment. We hear the voice of God. We sense his presence in our lives. We recognize divine appointments. We recognize when the Holy Spirit's speaking to us and moving us and directing us. And because of that, we experience this oneness with the Lord that is absolutely incredible. But, the riches and trappings of this life can blind us as well to the wealth that we have spiritually and thus causing us to be poor and destitute and defeated and deflated. And that's not, nothing new in the 21st century. Paul saw it in the lives of the Christians in Ephesus in the first century and he wanted to remind them of the vast wealth of their spiritual riches that were at their disposal. And so by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul speaks to us from the pages of Scripture in order to inform us and exhort us to draw on um, all that God has deposited into our spiritual accounts. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit making deposits into our accounts so that we can live well on this side of heaven. And so, if you will, could you stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 1? Verses 13 through 14. Again, I'm going to read this, and at the end I would ask, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I would ask that you would re repeat back, amen. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise 
of his glory. Father, this morning we thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, as we sang those songs earlier, um, Lord, we do ask that you would awaken our soul, that you'd awaken our heart to the reality of your physical presence in our lives, the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would awaken us to the reality that you have a plan and purpose for us, that you want to direct our lives. Lord, you want to point us in a direction. Lord, you want us also to be conduits of your grace and mercy to a world that so desperately needs to know you. And so, Father, we ask and pray today that you would encourage our hearts. We pray that the work of the Holy Spirit would have its way. We pray for the unction and power of the Spirit, that we would leave this place, as Clay prayed earlier, Lord, that we would be transformed through the work of your Spirit, through the power of your Word, that we leave these doors literally on fire for you. And so, Father, we pray, light us up. And, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to touch the lives of people that live in darkness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So as we said before, this section of Scripture, it deals with how the three persons of the Trinity, as, as uh, Roy has talked about so many times, the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Father is not the Son, not the Spirit, the Spirit is not, right, the whole thing, right? And so we're going to look at how in this section, how it teaches us that that there's all three persons of the Trinity are actively involved in securing our salvation. It's not just Jesus and the work on the cross that did it, but we see the Father working, we see the Son working, and we see the Holy Spirit working to secure our salvation. And once we're saved, this is important for us to remember, we are completely saved. Amen? Amen. So the first part, verses 3 through 6, this part shows us the selection of the Father. Verse 3 tells us that he has chosen us. This is a marvelous mystery of the Scriptures. It's the word election, a doctrine that has confused some and confounded others, right? Without a doubt, it is the single most debated theological topic in all of the Scriptures. I'm sure some of you are going, wait a minute, Rory brought in a Calvinist to teach us here this morning? No, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a Bible guy. And the Bible teaches that God has sovereignly worked in his will for his purposes to save mankind before the foundations of the earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. A seminary professor once said this, try to explain election, you'll lose your mind, but try to explain it away and you will lose your soul. It is just one of those delightful mysteries of the divine, a truth that only God sees clearly and that we at best grope blindly to comprehend. Something that is too good and too rich and too vast and too wonderful to comprehend. It is a wonderful mystery. But I think the greatest mystery of election is the fact, and I still believe this to this day, that he chose me at all. And yet the Bible is full of references to God choosing and electing his people. In John 15, 16, you guys have just gone through this over the last couple of weeks as Roy's leading you through the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I did not choose you. I'm sorry, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And there's there's a sermon just in that one verse. God choosing, God appointing for what purpose that we would bear fruit and that that fruit would abound. But for our purposes here this morning, we're just looking at that word choose. God says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Charles Spurgeon once said that God certainly must have chosen me before I came into this world, for he never would have done so afterward. And I believe that's the only way I can can ever give anyone an answer. Why did God choose you? He must have done it before the foundation of the world, because I did not deserve it. But the big question this morning is this. Why does God choose anyone? A friend of mine once said that God chose us because he chose to. Simply put, he chose us because he chose to. He didn't choose us because we, he saw potential in us. He didn't choose us because we did something good. 
He didn't choose us because we were honorable or we honored him or that we were bringing glory to him or that somehow he looked at us and thought, well, this guy might be useful in my mission. (laughs) He simply chose us out of the good pleasure of his will. God the Father extended his hand of fellowship simply because he chose to. Election is an amazing mystery. And I don't try to argue with it. I'm just undone by the reality that he chose me. Of all people, he chose me. And even when I was just thinking about the fact, when I was giving that, that short little picture of my testimony, and I was talking about when God opened my mind and my heart to understand when we were singing those words, that it's a story of God's love for us, I got choked up about it, thinking, I cannot believe that God came for me. Of all people, Paul talks about it, excuse me, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. And notice this, we don't want to miss this. What would motivate God to choose anyone? The God of the universe, the God of all creation, or as Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 12, the God who holds the universe in the span of his hand. What would motivate God to do such a thing as to choose me? Look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Look at what it says. In love. In love. That crazy four-letter word that has literally turned the world upside down, transformed the course of history, and reshaped cultures. The purpose of God is according to his love. He chose you based solely upon the affection of his heart. Think about that. Based solely upon the affection of his heart. What separates Christianity from any other religion in the world is that we did not do any of the seeking but our God sought us all because of the love that was in his heart from all eternity. Think about John chapter 3, verse 16, right? What does it say? For God so loved the world that what did he do? He sent his only begotten son, right? That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son to save you. What was his motivation? Because he loved you. Because he loved you. H.A. Ironside said this. If you don't know H.A. Ironside, I encourage you, if you don't have his commentaries, buy as many as you can. He's an amazing man of God. H.A. Ironside said this, that God set his love upon us in the past eternity. This troubles people sometimes, and yet how could it be otherwise? God, who is infinite in wisdom, with whom the past and the future future are all one eternal now, purposed in his heart before the world came into existence that he was going to have a people who would be to the praise and glory of his grace for all eternity. So he looked down through the ages and saw us as those for whom he would give his son in order to add to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. He chose you because he chose to. And why did he choose you? Because his love for you compelled him to do so. And for some of you here this morning, that's a rhema, that's a word from God for you. And especially for those of you who really struggled growing up, you didn't have an outstanding father figure. Whether you be a man or a woman, it's really hard for you to understand God as father and approach him as father because your worldly experience of a father was not good. But this is a word from the Lord for you this morning that God chose you to be with him simply because he wanted to be with you. He loved you. He chose you not because you earned his approval or because you're a good boy or a a good girl. He chose you because he loves you. And you need to hear that this morning. You've heard it a million times in your life, but for some reason this morning, you've come and there's an ache in your heart 
And God wants to press this reality deep into the flesh of your heart for you to know that he chose you because he wants to be with you. Amen? The word chosen is an interesting word in the original Greek. Interesting because it tells us of the selection of God, not only by himself, but for himself. The word chosen is the word eklegomai. And yes, it speaks speaks of choosing and choosing out for oneself, but it goes even deeper than that. It's more profound. It speaks of God choosing those to receive his favor, to be separated from the rest of mankind, to be peculiarly his own, and to be attended to continually by his gracious oversight. God has chosen you, removed you from the masses, separated you to be his own, to experience his favor and his gracious oversight in your life. In other words, God chose you in Christ for himself that he would be, I'm sorry, that we would be before him for all eternity in his presence, in his favor. This morning I was thinking about my wife's favorite verse, Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And how many of us have looked at that verse and thought, what does it really mean to delight yourself in God? on a day-to-day practical basis. What does that mean to delight yourself in God? And then what does it mean that God's going to give us the desires of our heart? What what does that look like? Does that mean the dreams, the aspirations, the wishes? What does it look like that God would give us the desires of our heart? And then it just dawned on me. No one ever asks what God's desires are. No one ever thinks, God, what is the desire of your heart? So I found myself this morning just praying like, Lord, reveal that to me. What is the desire of your heart? And you know what he said it was? It was you. That's the desire of his heart. The Bible, many times when we look at the Bible, especially in the New Testament, we think that it's about us. That we're the center, the, the object in it. The Bible's not about us. It's about God. And we're just a component. We're just a player in it. We're a character in the, in the story that God reveals about himself. But his greatest desire is you. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing this morning to know that? But what I love about this passage is that God doesn't stop there. There's so much more in this passage. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, it tells us that God has called us, chosen us, according to the good pleasure of his will. He's adopted us according to the good pleasure of his will. The word predestined in verse 5 refers primarily to what God does for saved people, and it only refers to saved people. It means to obtain beforehand, to predetermine, to have foreknowledge. It means to be chosen, but to be chosen for something, for a purpose. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans of peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We love that verse. It's a wonderful verse. But it's so true. It speaks of God's desire and God's heart for us. He has a plan and a purpose for us. And as we're sitting there taking communion, I was praying, God, help us understand your plan." And reveal it to us in such a way that every other plan, even the plans that we ourselves can make for our own future, pales in comparison. It becomes something that we do not want, that we do not desire, because what we see you desire for us is so wonderful and so attractive that everything else becomes ugly and unattractive to us. Amen? It's God's good pleasure for the purpose of his will to adopt us. Now, it will help us to understand, to bear in mind, that in the days when the Bible was written, men could have a number of wives or concubines. The children of the wives were legitimate heirs to all that they would have. The children of the concubines were illegitimate. But if a man wanted to select some of the children from his concubines to be his heirs, he would choose those children, bring them down to a public forum, and openly confess before the proper authorities that these children would be his legitimate sons. And then he would go through the official ceremony of adoption. And from that day forward, those children were recognized as full heirs to his estate. I'll tell you one thing that really... Um, captures my heart concerning this church. 
I've met so many people that have a heart for adoption and fostering. And what's amazing about that is it's not their heart, it's the heart of God. That is God's heart to adopt those who have no parents. And this church has that heart. And it's incredible. It's wonderful to see. Adoption is not only the heart of God, it is the act of God in which he gives those who have been born again a full standing in his family. And that means that we're able to immediately claim our inheritance as his children and enjoy our spiritual wealth. It means that you and I don't have to wait until we reach heaven to appropriate the riches that are ours in Christ. God sees us as full-grown heirs, able to draw from his resources today. A couple nights ago, I was talking to my wife, and I pulled up Forbes magazine, and every year, Forbes magazine gives the top 25 richest people on the planet. And I wanted to see, like, who are the richest people and how much money do they have, right? So I wanted to look and see. And so the top eight, I'm sorry, of the top ten, eight of them are Americans. And they're people like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, and Mark Zuckerberg. And none of that surprises us, right? We realize those guys are, they've got some bank. They have some, right, they have some money. If you combine all that they're worth together, it equals $645 billion. What would you do with $645 billion? If you had access to those resources, unlimited access to the resources of these five men, what would you do? Would you be passive in your attitude towards it? And one of the ladies going... Right now, you're probably thinking, I know exactly what I'd do. I'd buy that truck I'm looking for. I might myself a couple, a couple extra acres, maybe a couple more horses, maybe, I don't know, buy myself a yacht, even though there's no place to have it out here, you know? <laughs> Get my pilot's license. You know, you're probably thinking of all these different things that you could do, right? But one thing as I was thinking about that, I was like, but the Bible tells us that we have the resources of God at our disposal, And so the question I felt like the Holy Spirit was asking me personally, and I would just ask you as well, is what are you doing with the resources that are at your disposal today? Last night in the prayer meeting, one of the precious ladies was praying for the kids that she saw at the skate park. And she just broke down and she was weeping. Because the Mormons were there and they're hanging out with the kids and they're skating and do all that. Somehow their strategy is working. They're interacting with these kids that are lost and broken. And somehow they're there and they're, they're present and they're making relationships and they're speaking into their lives. And I found myself going, man, I need to learn to skate. <laughs> Honestly, I'm praying last night like, Lord, I'm almost 50. Help me learn to skate. What am I doing personally? What are you doing personally with all the resources of God that are at your disposal? Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through through Christ who strengthens me. That's my youngest daughter's favorite verse, Philippians 4, 13. And Paul could say this. He understood something that many of us don't because he understood that all things were at his disposal, meaning that God's resources were before him. And he was constantly drawing from that account. And he would write in Philippians 4, 11 and 12 that he's learned to be content. Again, something that our American culture, it, it doesn't exist, contentment in our culture, does it? We're constantly um, discontent. There's only one thing that we should ever be um, content with. And that is understanding the love of God for our lives. That's the only thing we should be, Lord, I'm content with that. Everything else pales in comparison. If I only had that, I would need nothing else. But we're so discontent. But Paul said, listen, I've learned this secret in Philippians 4. I've learned this secret to be content. All because he learned to draw from the resources of God. Guys, listen, you and I have been adopted. God the Father chose you and has openly proclaimed you as his own so that you could be with him simply because he wants to be with you. This is incredible, but there's more. I feel like one of those late night TV, you know, um, commercials like, oh, you buy these Guinness knives and if you... Pay $29.99 right now, but wait, there's more. There is more. 
Look at verses 5 and 6. It tells us that we are blessed, blessed in him. The King James uses the word accepted, and literally it's translated in the original language as embraced. We're embraced in God. We're caught up in God's embrace. Why? Not because of who we are, but because of where we are. And what I mean by that is this. If you're a believer in Christ, you are in Jesus, totally, simply, wonderfully in him. Amen? Before you were ever born, before you ever had a chance to do anything to merit his favor, before you even drew the first breath into your lungs, you need to understand that you were accepted by God, embraced by God the Father through his son Jesus Christ. That is radical truth. And so through the selection of God the Father, he has deposited to our spiritual bank account election, adoption, and acceptance. And that's what he has done in eternity past. But there's more. Notice what he's done in the present. In verses 7 through 12, here we see the sacrifice of God the Son. Verses 7 through 12, the sacrifice of God the Son. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In verse 7, he brings up this idea of redemption. Redemption is liberation procured by the payment of a ransom, purchased and set free by paying a price. In the Roman Empire, it's estimated there were some 60 million slaves, and they were considered of no more value than furniture. They were bought and sold and traded and discarded, just like furniture is today. But under Roman law, a citizen of Rome had the right to purchase a slave and to set him free, to purchase his freedom. Thus, saving his life. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, but you are bought with a price? You and I were redeemed, purchased, and set free. But our freedom was costly. Jesus paid the price for our freedom. The price was his own blood. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Peter 1, 18. Knowing that you were ransomed, Peter says, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter tells us that through Jesus' death, he released us from the slavery of sin and death, and we've been set free. But there's more. There's so much more. Not only is this transaction costly, the Bible tells us it's complete. This word redemption is a compound Greek word, apolutrosis. Lutrosis describes the act of paying a ransom to set us free, and the preposition apo, when added to lutrosis, means that the transaction that took place is so complete and so final that it actually severs completely, once and for all, any union, any connection with the previous relationship that we had. Completely. It erases it. It wipes it out. What that means is he doesn't see us for who we used to be or what 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 we've done in the past. But he only sees us as his sons and daughters. There is no history. There's only a beginning. Apolutrosis. Redemption. The second part of verse 7 says that we have also received forgiveness. And it reminds us of the, the ritual sacrifices that took place in Leviticus chapter 16, where they had the Jewish Day of Atonement. And on that day, two goats would be brought to the priest. One goat would be sacrificed. His blood would be sprinkled upon the people. And then the blood would be sprinkled upon the mercy seat or the Ark of the Covenant. 
The other goat would be brought in. The priest would lay his hands upon the goat's head. He would confess the sins of the nation upon that goat. And the goat would then be led out into the wilderness and released, carrying away the sins of the people, never to be seen again. And here's the point. Like the goats in Leviticus chapter 16, Jesus suffered and died to carry away our sins so they may not ever be seen again. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist is baptizing people. He's got a crowd of people around him, and all of a sudden, here comes Jesus. And you remember what John the Baptist said? He points to his disciples to Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What an incredible proclamation. In Psalm 103, verse 12, it tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us and reminds us that Jesus hung upon a patibulum, upon a cross, and his hands were spread to signify that his offer of salvation is open to the world, but also to reveal that what he was doing would cleanse those who would receive his offer from their sin as far as the east is from the west. It was a picture of Psalm 103, verse 12. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, or literally took them away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus took away our sin. And Paul tells us that no written accusation stands against us. That's that word, apolutrosis. It's been canceled out. It's been erased. It's been severed once and for all because Jesus bore our sins and carried them away, never to be seen again. Reminds me of Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Micah, thinking about the gracious, generous compassion of God, he writes in chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? And then he says in verse 19, You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You're going to cast our sin into the depth of the sea. Jeremiah 31, 34, for I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sin no more. You see, when we believed, Rory referenced this when he came to pray about communion, when we believed a divine exchange took place. A divine exchange took place. We gave Jesus our sin and in exchange, he gave us freedom and forgiveness. A mysterious and wonderful transaction. Our sin was poured out upon him on the cross. And in exchange, his righteousness was poured into our lives at conversion. Paul tells us in verse 8 that God has lavished forgiveness on us. I love that word lavished. He's lavished forgiveness on us. It means that he's expended profusely to bestow something in generous, extravagant quantities to shower God's forgiveness is extravagant. He's showered it upon us. And what that tells us is that in Christ, we are completely forgiven. And there's more. It just keeps getting better. It keeps building upon itself. And I'm going to use a phrase that Rory always says, can you give me eight more minutes? Well, we all know it's going to be another half hour. In Christ, we are completely forgiven, and there is more. Look at verse 11 and 12. Here we're told that in Jesus, we have received an inheritance, a wonderful inheritance, not from him, but in him, right? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. In other words, our sin made us poor, but in Christ we become rich. Through the person and finished work of Jesus, we've been set free, purchased, redeemed. We've been forgiven. God has lavished forgiveness upon us. 
and we've been given a glorious inheritance. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And what that means is that everything that is his, guess what? Is ours. It's ours as well. Not only has God the Father deposited richly to our account, but we see here that God the Son has deposited richly to our account as well. In Christ, we've been purchased. In Christ, we've been cleansed. And in Christ, we've been blessed. But that's not all. There's still more. In verses 13 and 14, we see the Holy Spirit also makes deposits into our spiritual bank account. Look at verse 13. It says, in him, and if any of you guys like writing your Bibles, I encourage you, wherever it says in him or in Christ, circle those spots. It's like nine or ten times in the section that he tells us that, that we are in him. Why does he tell us so much? When we see that in a short period of, of Scripture, a short little passage of Scripture, 14 verses, that he tells us almost ten times we are either in him or in Christ, why do you think the Holy Spirit is telling us that? Because we forget it. We forget we need to be reminded that we are sealed in him, and that's what we're going to hear in verses 13 and 14. Look at what it says. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Sealed in him. The Holy Spirit is our seal. Why is that significant? Why is it significant that we're being sealed in the Holy Spirit? Well, it speaks of two things. Number one, a finished transaction. And number two, ownership. A a finished transaction and ownership. You see, in Roman times and even the times of the king, important documents were sealed by pouring hot wax and then taking the signet ring of the king and pressing it into that wax and it would bear his mark. We've seen that in movies all over the place. But even, even today, legal documents are processed by um, being stamped with an official seal, right? And it, and it signifies the, the completion of the transaction, signifying the authority and the validation of the document. And so number one, this idea of being sealed by the Holy Spirit speaks of a finished transaction. Secondly, it speaks of ownership, The word sealed was a very common term in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a seaport city. Commodities would come through there. Anything going from the east to Rome would have to pass through Ephesus. People would buy commodities and they would pack them up to be transported to a destination and they would put pour hot wax on that that box or that package, and they would press their ring into it to bear its seal. After the package had reached its destination, the cargo would be unloaded from that ship, the servants of the master would go down to the docks, and they would identify their master's cargo by recognizing the seal of his ownership. In the very real way, God has put his seal of ownership on us. But what is it? It's the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Isaiah 43, verse 1 says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You're mine. God says you belong to me. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You're mine. The Spirit of God is a once and for all identification that gives us the continued assurance that we are God's children, bless you, entitled to all the vast riches and resources that are his. It's a once and for all identification that we are his children and that we're entitled to all of his vast riches. Secondly, it tells us in verse 14 that he's given us a guarantee. And I love this word. This, this word guarantee. Again, it's a, it has dual meaning, okay? First, in the King James or New King James, you're gonna see the guarantee is the word earnest. And it's an interesting word because in Paul's day, it, it literally meant a down payment. It was a promise by an owner uh, or a buyer to complete the transaction and to pay the amount in full. It was legal and binding. Even today, as I'm looking at Perry, um, real estate agents still use that phrase. It's still a common phrase, earnest money, Correct? Thank you for saying yes. So yeah. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is God's first installment 
in, or to his children that guarantees that he will give us everything that he's promised. And like I said before, it has dual meaning. And this is why I think it's so exciting. It's fascinating. This word guarantee or earnest also means engagement ring. It also means engagement ring. And in Greece today, that's how this word is used. If you were to go there along the markets and you're looking at things and you heard that word earnest, it's always referring to an engagement ring. And the idea here is this, that Jesus the groom has given the Holy Spirit to us, his bride, as an engagement ring, as a promise that he will come and claim his bride. What great assurance do we have as Christians? What greater assurance could you ever want? And to know that God has given us the Holy Spirit, that we belong to him, and he's sealed us and given us a ring, so to speak, as a promise to say that what he's begun, he will finish. What he's started, he will bring to completion. That we are on a trajectory, we have a destination, and that is heaven to be with him for all eternity. Amen? So for the Christian, it is a source of great encouragement to know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are working together on our behalf to not only save us, but to show us that we are completely saved in Him. In Christ, you and I have what money cannot buy. The spiritual riches that are open un- uh, have been opened up to us have been given to us by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they're awaiting for us to make daily deposit or sorry daily withdrawals from that account. And what's cool is this: it doesn't just end here; it's only the beginning of it. There is always more spiritual wealth to claim as we continue to walk with Him. The Bible is a guidebook. The Spirit is a teacher. And as we search the word of God, as we discover more and more the vast riches of Christ, then we begin to understand what it truly means to walk with him. Amen? Amen. These riches are planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, and presented by the Spirit. I'm going to have the worship team start making their way up as we close here this morning. Charles Spurgeon wrote a a little devotional book entitled A Checkbook on the Bank of Faith. And in it, each day there would be a promise from the scriptures and a short devotional message. And each promise was described as as good as money in the bank to everyone who would write a check against his account. By faith, you and I can appropriate all God's promises and draw from the wealth of his capital to meet every need that we face. This morning we've learned that we've been chosen adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven. We received an inheritance. We're sealed and guaranteed, all deposited to our account. Paul ends this section of verse 14 by saying this, as he's thinking about all that God has done to seal and secure our salvation, he says in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. I like how the New Living Translation translates it. He says this, And this is just one more reason to praise our God. One more reason to praise our glorious God. Amen? Amen. 